Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone. I had a nice break last weekend, and we were able to get up to North Carolina and spend time with Jacob and Jill and uh, just just unwind a little bit, but it's good to be back in Florida. And we are in the home stretch of our study of Colossians. We're going to finish it up over the next couple of weeks. Um, this great book that highlights the preeminence of Christ. Um, I, in this series, I've often brought up the word fullness to you. It is a word that appears throughout the book. It is a major theme within the book of Colossians. The first two chapters uh, declare the theological, the doctrinal justification for believing that Jesus is our fullness since he is the fullness of God in every understanding and aspect of that word, God. And then in chapter 3, when it turned, the book turns more practical, we saw how that fullness affects our identity in Jesus Christ. Well, here in chapter 4, we see how it affects our communication, both to God and to other people. And the opening verses here, in verses 2 to 4, the emphasis is on how we communicate to God in prayer. Dr. Kent Hughes, in his writing on these verses and on this idea of the theme of Colossians says, since Christ is the fullness of the universe and we have been made partakers of his fullness, our fullness should flow back to him in prayer. And in these opening verses that kind of emphasize our communication to God, there's several concepts, several truths that we need to make note of and kind of explore this morning. The first thing we notice is the priority of prayer in the first portion of verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. This is, uh, this is one of many exhortations from Paul for us to pray. All of his epistles, it seems, have these kinds of exhortations. In fact, 46 times in the epistles of Paul, you find the word pray, praying, praying, prayed, some cognate of that word, the emphasis being on how, it, how important it is that we pray. And this is fitting because you see it in the Gospels, Jesus, 60 times. The book of Acts, just that one book, you see the priority of prayer in the life of the apostles and the early church 30 times you see them praying or exhortations to pray. Last, this week is Pentecost Sunday. Last week was Ascension Sunday. And what you saw right after the Ascension in chapter 1 was that the apostles, all of these with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And they stay in the upper room praying virtually, it seems, around the clock, certainly fervently and consistently until the Holy Spirit comes. And so the priority of prayer is clear throughout scriptures. It's very evident in these opening words and the tone of these opening words. Now, listen, we're going to do an exercise here in a second, okay? I'm going to ask for you to give me feedback. 
and verbally respond to this question. And so don't leave me hanging here, okay? It's going to be embarrassing. And I'm going to embarrass all of us if you leave me hanging because I'll just sit here for like a minute and not say a word. So you got to give me some feedback. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the literal meaning of these opening phrases in verse 2. And I want you to answer this question. What do these words say? What does the tone and tenor of these words tell us about prayer? Okay, so as I give you this, these literal beings, how does this inform your understanding of prayer? Now, I want you to feed that back to me, okay? And, and don't leave me hanging. I'm telling you, don't leave me hanging. All right, so that phrase, continue steadfastly. It literally means to be earnest and persevering, to be persistent, to be devoted and busily engaged, to never give up in praying would be a literal way of saying that. And then we're told to watch, um, to, to be watchful in prayer. And by the way, prayer here means all forms of prayer, private prayer, corporate prayer, um, you know, small group prayer, uh, individual, you get the idea. It's all forms of prayer. Being watchful in it is literally saying, stay alert with an active, eager mind to be fully alive and alert. So you, you put this together, right? Be, don't give up in prayer. Persevere, be persistent in prayer. And when you do so, do it with an alert, engaged mind. Now, that's the tone and tenor. What does that tell you about prayer, the priority of prayer, how our pra- what prayer should be like? Don't leave me hanging. Like we're, okay. in a battlefield. we're on a battlefield. Explain what you mean. Excellent. So we are in the trenches of a battlefield. We're to be prepared, ready to move in reaction to anything we face. Excellent. Somebody else? One more time. Awesome. Not just popcorn, little prayer, but constantly in a state of prayer. Good. Remember to praise him and thank him for the prayers that have been answered. Wonderful. They're intentional. Awesome. Fantastic. I'll take one more. Oh, wow. We had like two or three. Okay. So over here, being consistent. Yes. Over here, being fervent in prayer. Yeah, you got it. Okay. This idea of continuing steadfastly in prayer means that prayer is to be a habit in our life that we engage in persistently with, and here's the, the key words, persevering energy. Not giving up in prayer. You're not praying just for a little bit and then stopping and oh well, but continually going on and praying. It implies something here that the ministry of prayer is difficult, that it is it can be wearying, and that we're going to be tempted to to give up, to slack off, to to grow lethargic. Being watchful in it, as as Christy said, the point here is. We have a reason to be on guard, to be vigilant, to be spiritually alert and active. There is great danger to us in the spiritual realm. And so mental lethargy, spiritual apathy is, is, is dangerous to us as Christians. Jesus communicates this in the, the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that special moment, that sacred moment, when he brings the disciples together, uh, especially Peter, James, and John, and they go to pray with Jesus, and he tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
Does that not communicate how important? And as he uses the same words that Paul uses, watch, be, be mentally alert, be on guard. And the whole reason why the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Consistent, persevering prayer keeps us vigilant and spiritually alert. And there's, we need this because our citizenship, as we saw in chapter 3, may be in heaven, but right now our residence is flat here on earth. And this duality in our lives requires us to be watchful, to persevere in prayer. The priority of prayer reminds us that we have facing us a serious, evil, implacable enemy, and we are engaged in spiritual warfare with that enemy. I, we, all, we, many of us are familiar with the words of Peter. It's a great warning. Stay alert. He's using the exact same language as Paul. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I can't help but think with those words when, when, Paul, when, when uh, Peter uses those words that he is speaking from personal experience. If you, if, you know, maybe and when he's writing those words, he's thinking back to that event in his own life when they were walking with Jesus and Peter, James, and John are arguing over who is going to be the supreme person in the kingdom of God and how they're going to be so true to Jesus. And Peter lo uh, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, before this rooster crows in the morning time, you are going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, Lord, absolutely not. I will stick by you through thick and thin. And, of course, you know how that story ends. He ends up betraying Jesus three times. But in the middle of that prophecy, Jesus says something important. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. Be on guard. Be alert. For you're, you have an enemy. He's like a roaring lion. This goes right back to what Peter experienced. But I love what Jesus says. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. If Jesus' response to the great enemy is to plead with the Father in prayer, how much more is it incumbent upon us to do the same knowing that we face the exact same enemy. In verse 2, the priority of prayer is clearly presented. And then we see in the second, or the last part of verse 2, the spirit of prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. You saw a, a video a few weeks back. It was one of the construction videos. And we're going to have another one for you next week. It's going to be really exciting to see. But in that one that you saw several weeks back, uh, there was a portion of it where Don and I were standing as they were pouring the foundation for the children's wing, and we were throwing rocks, those, those stones, into the foundation. I don't know if you guys noticed or not, but one of those workers gave Don the stink eye because Don was throwing them at the worker instead of throwing them all over. Them. I thought that was hilarious, you know. I guess he was just attracted to that big tube of concrete. But anyway, if you remember, we did, when we were going through the book of Joshua, chapter 4, when... The Israelites are crossing over the Jordan River, and they're at Gilgal. They build this monument of stones, and it was to be a, a reminder to them of the blessings of God, the greatness, the goodness of God that they had experienced uh, in the crossing, in the 40 years in the desert, and in the crossing of the Jordan River. And, and we took stones, little stones, 
about, you know, yay, yay big, and we all wrote, you know, maybe a date and something that we remember where God poured out his grace upon us, and it was a blessing to us. And so those, some of those have been in the, are in the foundation of the children's wing. Some of them are in the walls. Some of them will be in the, the foundation of the sanctuary itself spread throughout the building. And all of that was intended to help us. And when we think of those stones, they cause us to remember the goodness of God, which in turn leads to us praising God and, and being thankful to God. Prayer with thanksgiving, this verse says. This is the right and proper response to God's abundant grace. We, we are thankful as Christians for the blessing of salvation. We are thankful that we have the privilege of 24-7 continual access to our Heavenly Father. We are thankful for the daily manifestations of God's daily grace and his manifestations of his love. We're thankful for the many expressions of his presence and his power in our lives. Right now, as, as, as Paul mentioned, we are thankful for all the ways we've seen him work in the past. And so our prayers are to be in this spirit of thanksgiving. And this kind of thankful prayer is vital to our own spiritual growth so that our maturation is healthy and balanced. You see, it's, it's imbalanced for us to simply be guys and gals who come to God and we pray, give me this, give me that, give me, I forget the lyrics of the song, give me that, you know, but anyway, um, all we do is ask for things for God. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And what happens is we become very selfish, self-centered people. And when God doesn't give us all these things that we want, we begin to doubt, well, maybe he doesn't and he's not there. And every, because we're praying, as Jesus says, amiss. Our prayers are to be clothed with the spirit of thanksgiving. And this is important for our maturation. It keeps us humble. It fosters humility. The more we thank God for all that he has done in our lives, these are constant reminders that we are not all that. <laughs> that everything we have is simply because of God's love and grace towards us. It reminds us that if it were not for the grace of God, there go I. Like this person over there who is so obviously suffering and destitute in life. It fosters humility. It motivates us to pray with bold faith. Because every time you're thanking God in prayer, you essentially are remembering how he has answered prayers in the past. And if he's answered these prayers, why wouldn't I pray and continue to pray for, in the right way for the future? It, it encourages bold faith. So in verse 2, Paul puts before us both the, the priority of prayer and the spirit of prayer. But in the final two verses, he puts before us an important and exciting truth about prayer, and that is the ministry of prayer. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. That word ministry, we use it oftentimes. Oh, he's in the ministry. As if, you know, this, the word ministry is like this high vocation. And, and in one sense, it is an important vocation. But the word ministry essentially means instrumentality. Uh, it's the means to a desired end. That's what ministry means. That's the definition. The means to a desired end. Instrumentality. 
And so when we think about prayer in these verses, there is the ministry of prayer, the instrumentality of prayer, the purpose of prayer for the means to an end. I was first confronted with this understanding of prayer in 1984. I heard for the first time in a a sanctuary, Dr. Warren Wearsby bring a message. And you've heard me, you've seen me quote Dr. Warren Wearsby through the last 15 years. I I love, not only is he a a wonderful theologian, but he just has a pastor's heart. You put these two things together and it's a wonderful resource if you aren't aware of him. But in that message, and he was preaching actually a series of messages over the entire week for the Monday through Sunday through Friday on the subject of prayer. But this one statement stood out to me, and I've never forgotten it. The purpose of prayer is not to get my will done in heaven, but to have heaven's will done on earth. The purpose of prayer is not to have, get my will done in heaven, but to get heaven's will done on earth. Prayer is the means by which God works in this world. Let's think about this truth and think about how it manifests itself in a couple of ways. This means that prayer, prayer is the ministry of God's grace. It is the means of God's grace by which he works in our lives to transform us into the image of Christ. Prayer is is a means of God's grace by which he works in our lives to transform us into the image of Christ. This is not a new truth. This is not some Marvel novel concept in modern, you know, that we have discovered in the church today. This is seen throughout the centuries, and many before us have spoken to this. One example of that is at the height of the Reformation. In Germany, uh, there, you know, at that time, you were either Catholic or Lutheran, and you were trying to kill each other, most people. But there was a group in the province of Palatinate, the leader, the, the executor of that province, and the, there was a large group that had grown in that province of Christians who had been influenced by John Calvin in Switzerland. And, and as they grew in their understanding of the gospel, the knowledge of God's word, they realized they had a need to, to educate and disciple their children and their adults. Understand that that in the Middle Ages, and actually until just really recent times, illiteracy was the norm. In 1500, 10% of the population in Western Europe could read. 10%, 90% of Europe was illiterate. In 1600, about a third of men could read, but still only 10% of women could read. So, and this was, had been true for centuries, all the way back to the early church. And so, how do you disciple people who can't read? Think about that. It, when you have the scriptures, you can't read. It's harder. And so, what the early church began and what continued for centuries was what we call catechisms. And this was a form of helping people learn orally the truth of God's word and the gospel. And so this was in the form of questions and answers, and you memorized them. And part of the worship service was the pastor or some leader would ask the question, and the people would recite back the answer. And this was done regularly to help people learn the truth of God's word, to learn the Ten Commandments, the Great Commandment, the the gospel itself. 
Well, these early Christians, in, or excuse me, these uh, Reformation Christians in Germany, they created a catechism that you will see Paxson use more often than our own catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the reason why is that the Heidelberg Catechism is so much more pastoral in, in tone and tenor, and he uses it quite often. Well, one of their questions is, why do Christians need to pray? Why do Christians need to pray? So we're going we're gonna to step back to the 1500s, and I'm going to ask the question, and you're going to give me the answer, okay? Why do Christians need to pray? Oh, I guess you need the answer here. Okay. All right, here we go. Why do Christians need to pray? Give me the answer. Church, we have a rich heritage to pull from. And what these Heidelberg Christians are getting at is exactly what Paul is saying here in this passage. That the ministry of prayer is a means of God's grace by which he works in our lives to transform us into the image of Christ. It is also a means of God's grace in which he works in our world. Now, through the years, I've approached Christians in different churches, never in this church, um, Yeah, Uh, and said, hey, listen, we have a shortage in children's ministry. Would you be willing to volunteer on Sunday mornings once a month and help us with, you know, Covenant Cove or Children's Church or whatever it was called at past churches? And, uh, what? And, uh, or or the nursery. I said, hey, would you be willing? We're short in the nursery. We need discipleship. We need small group leaders. Would you be willing to help us out and do this? And, you know, more than once, I've gotten the answer, well, Jerry, that's... That's not really my ministry. You know, my ministry is to, and, you know, fill in the blank, and normally it's to the Hottentots in the back, you know, of, of Australia or something, you know, and never something that's practical in our own church. But, you know, my ministry is, that, or, you know, I don't really have the gift of children, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, or, or the one that actually, don't, don't tell me this one because this one triggers me. Just, you know, alert. This one triggers me. Oh, I've done my turn in there. It's, it's someone else's turn now. Arr, that one just like, you know, spikes my blood pressure. Okay? But the idea being uh, that's not my ministry. Well, I have good news for you. And this is our takeaway truth this morning. Paul tells us that every Christian is called to the ministry of prayer. No exceptions. No, no, I don't have the gift of prayer. Okay. Well, I'm too busy for prayer. Or I'm already doing so many things, I can't add prayer to the sky. No, every Christian is called to the ministry of prayer. And what you see in this passage is the ministry Paul gives us is characterized in two ways. There's first the ministry of intercessory prayer. He says, pray also for us. I'm, I am, it delights my soul to see the amount of intercessory prayer that takes place in our church. I mean, we already had it this morning with Christy as she was up here praying uh, for Esther Kennedy and others in our church and, and all the prayer that takes place in our, our covenant groups and discipleship groups and our Sunday morning prayer group, this intercessory prayer. And this is important. This is why biblical community is so important. We're involved in each other's lives 
so that we know the burdens that are in our lives, whether it's a, a physical burden or emotional, psychological burden, if it's a spiritual burden. And these are very practical needs. Intercessory prayer is practical prayer that's focused on the needs of others. And certainly, that is an important manifestation of the ministry of prayer. How God brings about his will in other people's lives through the ministry of intercessory prayer. But there's another one in this passage, and that's the ministry of kingdom-focused prayer. Notice that Paul is asking that God would open up doors so that he could give the gospel and that he would actually give it clearly. He asked this of the Colossians. He even does it in a more detailed manner with the church at Ephesus. In chapter 6, and you'll see similarities with the book of Colossians, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He's encouraging this ministry of kingdom-focused prayer, joining in the mission of Jesus' church, begins with prayer focused on his kingdom work. And we can all be involved in this ministry of prayer. We never get too old and infirmed. We can never start too young, this ministry of prayer. I was reminded of how important kingdom-focused. I think intercessory prayer comes natural to us, a little more natural and in some parts because, you know, we have our own burdens and we want people to pray for us. And so intercessory prayer may become more natural. And, and truthfully, in our biblical community, we can get out of whack where we're praying so much for each other's organs that we forget, you know, I call them organ recitals, pray for my spleen, my liver, my whatever. And, and we forget the kingdom-focused aspect of prayer. Both are important. I was reminded of that just this week. I got an email from our partner in India, Ken. Remember back uh, maybe the beginning of May or somewhere, I asked you to pray for him that they were going through severe persecution, and he gave us, finally gave us an update. Uh, it took this long because the enemies uh, of, of Christ, they cut off all Internet access. Uh, he's been unable to communicate. They shut down the airport. It's an hour from his home, so he couldn't you know, get on a plane and travel to New Delhi and communicate so instead, he had to take a, a drive almost 14 hours long through mountain passes. And, and if you've ever been there, man, that is no fun to get to an airport so he could fly to New Delhi and finally communicate with us. And what he told us was extremely alarming. He told us that uh, his family, thankfully his family is all right, but that so far 50,000 Christians in their province have been rendered homeless Homes have been burned down. They've been run out of town. Uh, many have been killed. Dozens have been killed. 222 churches have been burnt down to the ground, destroyed. Uh, the Christian schools, a big part of their ministry is putting, starting Christian schools that are very effective at evangelizing and then starting churches. Several of them have been burned to the ground um, 50,000 people I mentioned have been made homeless by all of this, and uh, the, the, it's, not, it's not letting up. They can't even communicate because 
you know, all their means of communication had been shut down by the militant Hindus. Church, the need for kingdom-focused prayer has not changed a bit in 2,000 years. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world who we're partnering with, who are facing opposition that we're only getting a small taste of. This is the ministry of prayer. So how does this apply to us this morning? So what? So what? Well, in applying these verses, I first need to make this point. For some of you, these verses do not apply. Uh, let Let me say it like this. If you have children and they come to me instead of to you for their needs, what is my answer going to probably be? No. I'm not your daddy. Go to your daddy. Go to your daddy and talk to your daddy about your needs. I mean, obviously, if there was a, a serious situation, a mercy, I'm talking about just, you know, hey, would you, would you buy me a car? Would you, you know, whatever. No. Go to your daddy, you know? Absolutely not. Some of you right now, you don't, prayer's a waste of your time. Prayer's a waste of your time. You see, prayer is the birthright of the sons and daughters of God, not of people who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus says to everyone who rejects him as Lord and Savior, that you are of your father, the devil. That's who you talk to. And by the way, he doesn't, you know, it's not good conversation. You don't have the right to come to God and say, Father, I am having this issue in my life. You don't have that right yet. You first need to receive his eternal son. What father would listen to anybody who rejects his own son? No father would do this. And certainly not God the Father. And so if you reject Jesus, your first prayer needs to be, Father, forgive me for rejecting Jesus. Jesus I want to follow you. I need you as my Lord and Savior. That's where this journey of faith and the participation in a life of prayer starts for you. It starts with you recognizing your need to have God as your eternal Father. Now, most of you this morning are Christians. So let me apply this passage to you by asking you a question How's your ministry of prayer? How's your ministry of prayer? How's your prayer life? I ask that question with trepidation. Okay? I, I ask it because you know, even 150 years ago, pastors and theologians and scholars were writing about the dearth of prayer among the people of God. J.C. Ryle, 150 years ago, wrote, Yes, few pray. It's just one of the things assumed as a matter of course, but seldom practiced. A thing which is everybody's business but in fact, hardly anybody performs. So I ask this question, how's your ministry of prayer, how's your prayer life with trepidation? Because certainly if this was true in J.C. Ryle's day, how much more true 150 years later when we are busier and more distracted than that generation could ever conceive? But I also ask this question with trepidation because I've been on the receiving end of sermons based out of verses like this. And by the time I got done, I felt, you know, about this tall. I mean, it was like a club in the hands of the preacher that just smashed us and shamed us and, you know, destroyed us spiritually. Because let's just be frank with one another. 
Are you ever satisfied with your prayer life? I mean, we can always pray more. We can always pray more fervently. I mean, none of us come anywhere close. I mean, that's, it's, that's the way it is. And so oftentimes verses like this are just like, you know, you stink, you pray, you know, and we just get beat up with it. And so as I was thinking about that, I, I looked at it and said, how does this not become a, a, a beatdown, you know, a pastoral beatdown to people who are busy, just like I'm busy, and to people who probably stink in their prayer lives at times, just as I stink in my prayer life at times, where the ministry of prayer is not the first thought on my mind. And so it was encouraging as I was studying this, and I came across some writings by Dr. Kent Hughes. He's, he's like a Dr. Wearsby, a more modern-day Dr. Wearsby. And, and he said about these verses, as much as these verses are speaking to the mechanics of prayer and to the actual practice of prayer, they're speaking more to the posture of our heart. The posture of our heart, even when we are busy with the normal rhythms of life, can still be Godward and engaged in a form of dialogue with him through the Holy Spirit, even as we are going throughout the busyness of our day, taking care of children or work or whatever it may be. And in his writings, he, he quoted from a, a, a medieval monk from the 17th century. Brother Lawrence was a, a monk in Paris who was renowned for his humility, his devotion to Christ, his, his, the time he spent, kind of like the way Martin Luther would spend hours in prayer, that kind of person. And after his death, they collected all of his writings into a, a classic Christian book. I would commend it to you called The Practice of the Presence of God. And one of the things that he's written is what Kent Hughes quoted Brother Lawrence saying is the time of business does not, I'm sorry, that is, uh, yep, that's it. The time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. So he's talking about, hey, we're all busy. And how do you reconcile this idea of praying fervently, pray without ceasing? And he says, the time of busyness does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were on my knees. And at first I said, man, that's awesome for a monk. I'm not a monk. And neither are you. But then I started thinking about what are they saying here? What is Paul saying? What is Kent Hughes? What is Brother Lawrence saying? Here? Well, it's something that I experienced this week. I was driving down Emerson Road. I drive by it every day, the new construction. And you know what I do when I drive by every day? Well, first of all, I almost run off the road looking. But <laughs> I can't help but look at that. And, and as I'm driving down the road, you know, I thank God for what's happening. And I praise him. And I'll, I'll stop and pray, Lord, would you continue to provide what is needed? In other words, I can safely drive my car and pray at the same time. What they're getting at here is all of us are multitaskers. Ladies, you are so much better at multitasking than men are. And what they're getting at is you can multitask in a way where you are going about the busyness of life, and yet at the same time, the posture of your heart is directed to God. I mean, ladies, you're good. I remember one time at church, 
the last church I was pastor at, I was watching Catherine. I was talking, and I noticed she was talking to a lady. They were fully engaged in conversation, eye contact, all that. And, and all of a sudden, she reaches over, and she grabs Jacob. He was about five at the time, and just pulls him over towards him and holds on to him as he was about to stab MJ with a pencil, Right? <laughs> She never broke eye contact. She didn't stop the conversation one bit. Everything was fully engaged with that woman, and yet she We do this all the time. Guys, we, we talk to one another while we throw a fish in lure. Every one of us this afternoon, we're about to go to lunch. We're going to eat and carry on a conversation. We multitask all the time. And what this passage is encouraging us is to focus on and think about that the posture of our heart is a multitasking concept. As we go about life, we think Godward. More than one time in my life, I've needed this concept. It's my prayer life will grow stagnant. It'll grow stagnant because of sin. It'll grow stagnant because of spiritual discouragement, stagnant because of busyness. Sometimes it gets stagnant because you get into a routine and a formula, and it's just formulaic, ritualistic prayer. And it's happened more than once. Maybe some of you are there right now this morning. If that's the case, when your prayer life becomes stagnant, remember the gospel and the work of God in your life through Christ. Remember that. And as you remember that, you'll find thanksgiving welling up. And as you worship God in thankful prayer, you will see that the stagnant prayer life will begin to be rejuvenated. So if you're there right now, I want to encourage you to start small. Return to thanking God for his grace that you've experienced in Jesus Christ, that you've experienced in your salvation and in the many manifestations of grace. Remember and allow that to drive you to thankfulness and prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift that we are about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper, the gift of our Savior. And for all of us here this morning who our prayer lives maybe have been stagnant or have been weak, would you do a work of grace in our hearts? Father, we thank you for the truth of Romans 8, that even when we go through difficult times of prayer, the Holy Spirit within us is interceding on our behalf before the throne. Even when we don't know exactly how to pray or what to pray for, he prays for us. Thank you for that ongoing manifestation of your grace in your life. But Lord, would you rejuvenate us, empower us, enthuse us for prayer. Help us to do so by remembering your love and grace towards us. In your name we pray, amen.